you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Nahum, the minor prophet of Nahum. While you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little peek behind the curtain. I lay out my sermon schedule six months in advance, six months at a time. And so I knew that today we would be coming to Nahum back the first week of January. My sermon prep, my two study days, I aim to make Monday and Tuesday. My goal is to have my sermon written, the manuscript written. I write a manuscript written by lunch or a little after on Tuesday. And I had just finished writing this week's sermon on Tuesday when I got a call that I needed to go and be with Abby and Sean immediately. That's when we send out, sent out the church-wide text. And I share all of that with you because not a single point of the sermon has changed. But I think what we'll see is the sovereignty of God and the kindness of God come to us through the Spirit of God and the Word of God. He already knew, brothers and sisters, he already knew, and he was preparing his people for it. Minor prophet of Nahum, start in verse 1, we'll read through verse 8. An oracle, oracle can be burden, a burden, an oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Let's pray to the Lord together. Father, this week, has been heavy. It's been heavy for me. It's been heavy for our staff. It's been heavy heavy for our congregation. It's been especially heavy for one of the families in it. And so, Lord, we do the only thing that we know to do. We come here today, and we re-up our commitment to you, our trust in you, our devotion to you, We re-acknowledge our confidence in you. And we ask, Lord, that you administer to us through your word in a way that only the living God with living hope can. 
We ask these things now in the name of a risen Savior, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I guess one of the first prayers that many of us learn goes something like this. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. And we're probably prone to believe that that is a very benign, almost cliche, kitschy kind of children's prayer. That when we grow up, we need to pray prayers of greater substance. But what I want to propose to you this morning is that a prayer so simple is a prayer profound enough for you to build your life upon. That what we need is not more flowery, sophisticated language to inform our prayers. What we need, especially in times of great hardship, especially in times of great uncertainty, especially in times of great suffering, is to understand these simple truths more profoundly and more thoroughly and apply them more fully. This week. Those are the things that have been called into question, aren't they? The greatness of God and the goodness of God. Those are the things that the evil days of this world constantly are calling into question. And as we stand at the casket of a 36-year-old father of two, in the prime of his life and peak health, and mourn his death, those are the same two questions that come into mind, aren't they? Same two principles that come into mind. Is God not able? Is God not great? Could God not stop this? Could not God not have intervened? Could God not have done something about it? Or is God not good? Perhaps he can, but he's just not willing. Perhaps he, he can stop it, but he doesn't have the desire to. So which is it? Is God not great or is God not good? This is the tension that Nahum seeks to answer. This is the question that Nahum is wrestling with. Do you see the relevance, brothers and sisters? He's writing, it's very similar to Obadiah. You remember Obadiah wasn't writing to Judah. Obadiah was writing to Edom. He was about, writing about Edom, the enemies of God's people. And again here, what we see is he's not writing so much about Judah. He's writing about Nineveh and the enemies of God and those who have brought oppression to God's people. And so he's writing this to Judah on behalf of Nineveh that they might have hope in the midst of evil days. That they might have hope in the midst of days that seem impossible. Days that are filled with suffering. Days in which threat is always hanging over them. Days in which death seems to be much more prevalent than life. Here you are in Assyria, the great enemy of God is on the rise and on the ascension. And the people of God are in steep decline. So Nahum writes these words that they might understand who God is in the midst of evil days and why God is trustworthy even when it seems like evil is the one that is winning. And so I want us to see these two simple truths one more time. That the way that Nahum would assure us would start off by telling us that God is great. That God is great. The central question in the book of Nahum is how long will evil reign? How long will evil win? How long will evil oppress? How long will evil continue 
to triumph? And maybe we can't articulate it just like that, but that's, that's the question that our anxiety asks. That's the question that our fear asks. That's the question that our depression asks. That's the question that our mourning and our grief asks. That's the question our sense of loss asks. How long will evil win? How long will death reign? My grandfather, he fought bravely in Vietnam. And even to this day, if there's a sudden noise or a sudden movement behind him, he jumps and he shouts that the scars of the past bring constant feeling of threat in the present. And it's not as vivid in all of us from the exterior. But the truth is, is that all of us in some way live that way. All of us are bearing scars and traumas for the pa- from the past. And all of the traumas from the past are causing us to live with an awareness, a peaking awareness, a varying intensity of the potential for threat that is facing us today. That is, it's a reminder. It's a reminder that evil is reigning in our day. And so Nahum points his people, he points the southern kingdom of Judah to the greatness of God to remind them that yes, evil appears to reign, but evil will not reign ultimately. There is one that is above evil. There is one who is transcendent. There is one who is sovereign and to whom evil will answer. So he reminds them that God reigns passionately. He reigns passionately. Not that long ago I read a story of a mother and her boyfriend being arrested. Her children, the boyfriend, had severely abused and beaten the children. Best as we know, the mother had not participated. But she was arrested, and she was arrested and sentenced with the boyfriend, not for having beaten her children, but for having been indifferent about it. That her indifference made her an accomplice in the eyes of the law. I think sometimes when it comes to our suffering, when it comes to young dads passing away, when it comes to the abuses that we've encountered, when it comes to the evils that we've seen, when it comes to the injustices that we've experienced, we think, God, are you just indifferent? That in some way we begin to impugn the character of God, believing that that God must be indifferent. And if he's indifferent, then he is an accomplice. Perhaps he is not the perpetrator himself, but an accomplice as an indifferent observer. What Nahum wants us to see is that is not who God is. That is not the character of God in the least. He starts out in verse 2, he's telling us who the Lord is, the character of the Lord. And he uses three different ways to describe him. He says the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. These are not words of indifference, are they? Jealous, avenging, wrathful, taking vengeance, keeping wrath, storing wrath. These are words of aggression. These are words of, of passion. These are words of, of great, of great uh, offensiveness to God. In fact, if you take the word jealous, the word jealous can actually be translated as zealous. And it is in many places throughout the Bible. That what he is explaining to us is that the jealousy of God is a 
flowing out of the passion of God, that God is passionate about his name and God is passionate about his people and being passionate about his name and passionate about his people that his full fury, his wrath, his vengeance will come against all of those who try to bring dishonor to his name and harm to his people. That God is not asleep at the will. God is not indifferent to the plight of his people. God is not indifferent to the evil in our day. God is not indifferent to the deaths that we know. God is not indifferent to the injustices that we face. God is not indifferent to the abuse that we've experienced. God is passionately involved in the creation. God is passionately on the side of his people. God is waiting, zealous for his name's sake. That in fact, God's wrath... And I don't think we think of this way very often. God's wrath and God's vengeance flow out of his jealousy, flow out of his zeal for his name, flow out of his love for you, his devotion to you, his passion for you. You see, if we had a judge and a murderer was brought before the judge, not a single one of us would say that it is a good judge that looks the other way and lets the murderer go unpunished. Not a single one of us would say that it's a good judge that allows an abusive father to stand before him and then sends him right back into the house with his children. Not a single one of us would believe that that's good. Not a single one of us believes that's justice. See, we often think of the wrath of God as the negative. But for the people of God, the wrath of God is the other side of salvation. Why does the judge sentence the murderer? Why does the judge sentence the abuser? It's for two reasons. One, it is to punish the abuser. It is to punish the murderer. And the second reason is it is to save and protect the oppressed. To protect those that are under threat and in danger. Our salvation is not separate from the wrath of God. Our salvation is the other side of the wrath of God. That the wrath of God, the justice of God, the vengeance of God is actually a means of our salvation. This is why John writes in his gospel, chapter 5, that we have already, those of us in Christ, passed through the judgment. That now the judgment is not against us, the judgment is for us. And that's why... We can actually live out what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. When he says, so far as it is with you, live peaceably with all. This is the passage I read to kick off our service. That don't meet fire with fire. Don't meet evil with evil. Don't meet hatred with hatred. Don't meet anger with anger. Don't meet bitterness with bitterness. Instead, meet evil with good and overcome evil by good. Trusting, trusting that vengeance is of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, you don't have to store bitterness in your heart. Toward those that have wronged you. And you don't have to bear the responsibility of wielding the acts of justice against those whom have been unjust towards you. That every injustice that you have experienced will be avenged by the Lord. Every abuse that you have known will be avenged by the Lord. Every injustice that you have witnessed and hated and wept over will be avenged by the Lord. And all of those that you are indifferent about. They will be avenged by the Lord too. See, justice and vengeance can only be entrusted into the hands of one who is actually good, actually, actually great, actually trustworthy. And so we can entrust it to him. Because he, doesn't, he isn't indifferent about our plight and he isn't indifferent about our suffering. He isn't indifferent about our sicknesses. He isn't indifferent about our abuses. He reigns passionately 
for his people. But God is not just great because he reigns passionately. He's great because he reigns justly. He reigns justly. The issue that many of us have with the greatness of God is that his patience comes off to us as passivity. His patience comes off to us perhaps even as impotence. That in other words, we experience suffering, we experience offense, we experience injustice, we experience bad health, we experience abuse, and we wonder, why isn't God doing something now? Why isn't God operating now? Why isn't God avenging me now? Why isn't God intervening today, in this moment, in that hospital bed, in that ER? Why isn't God intervening now? And so here's Nahum. And he's talking to the people of Judah. And they're wanting to know, why is God not saving us from Assyria today? Right now. From our suffering. From the evil one. What's interesting that you may not recognize yet is that the book of Nahum is actually a sequel or an epilogue to the book of Jonah. Do you remember the book of Jonah? The book of Jonah, Jonah goes into Nineveh and he doesn't want to go and he's bitter about going and he's upset about going. He does everything that he can to avoid going. And he preaches a one-line sermon and the whole city repents and this Assyria, God's judgment against Nineveh and against Assyria is, is pardoned because of their repentance. Well, Nahum gets to preach the sermon that Jonah wanted to preach. Nahum is written 150 or so years after the book of Jonah. And Nineveh has fallen back in offense to God. Nineveh has fallen back into the old ruts of the Assyrian way of brutality and harshness and vileness. They have egregiously and heinously come against all of their enemies. And so we see something of the difference between Nahum and Jonah. Who is Jonah? Jonah is the one that is angry that God doesn't work faster. Jonah is the one that is angry that God's judgment hasn't come swifter. Jonah is the one that wants God to punish the the unrighteous and to punish the evil today in this moment. And he becomes bitter to God, bitter unto death. He says, just take me out of this world. Nahum, on the other hand, had experienced greater tragedy, had, had witnessed greater hardship at the hands of the Ninevites, at the hand of the Assyrians. And he's one that's shown to us as Trusting in the Lord. Well, that would be a good tension for us to explore, wouldn't it? What's the difference between the person who is angry toward God and the person who trusts God, though one may even experience greater injustice and greater suffering than the other? You've witnessed this before, haven't you? What's the difference? Both of them quote Exodus 34, verse 6. Both both Nahum and Jonah quote the same verse, but they highlight something different in both of them. In, in, In each passage. Look at, at the bottom of the screen down there, I have Exodus 34, 6 and 7. This is in the promised land, or this is in the wilderness, on the way to the promised land, after the worship of Baal, Moses has interceded. We've come back to this time and again. This is one of the most repeated verses in all the Bible. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now notice what Jonah, just above that, notice what Jonah quotes. He quotes that verse, but he highlights only the side of God's mercy, only the side of God's grace. 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, Jonah says. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and always, he seems to say, relenting from disaster. That if I go, I know who God is, and I know what God will do. God will just forgive them. And in other words, it seems that in Jonah's theology, that God just always turns the other cheek. God always looks the other way when it comes to sin. God always looks the other way when it comes to injustice, and when, it, when it comes to those that have brought offense to him. But look at how Nahum quotes it. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Just as much a part of Exodus 34, isn't it? That the difference very often between those who are angry with God and those who trust in God, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of abuse, even in the, midst, in the face of great injustice, is to have a well-rounded comprehensive understanding of the person of who God is. That God is a just God as much as he is a gracious God. And that God will not stand by passively and allow his people to be overrun and overturned. That is, God is patient. And his timing is not like our timing. But God is not passive and God is not impotent and God is not forgetful. No, he didn't come in Jonah's time, and he's not coming in Judah's time, and he won't come in our time. But brothers and sisters, justice will roll. Justice will roll like water down the stream. In fact, he wants him to see that not God only is God just, but God is the one who reigns over everything that they see, and he reigns over it supremely. That you have to understand that the Assyrians, they are the arch enemy of God's people in the Old Testament. There are many enemies. We saw this again in Obadiah with the Edomites. But there are many, many enemies of God's people throughout the, throughout the Old Testament. But the arch enemy, the, the great nemesis is Assyria. They are the ones that always seem to pose the greatest threat to the people of God. And they represent everything that is the exact antithesis of who God is. The, the Assyrians were brutish people. They would go in and they didn't aim to just conquer a people or, or defeat a people. They aimed to humiliate them. They, they would disfigure the men who's they, whom they conquered. They would rape the women that they had conquered. They would enslave the children that they conquered. They would humiliate them and march them naked through the streets in defeat after they had lost in battle. They credited their power as they continued to ascend. And, and right here in the book of Nahum, Assyria is at all-time high. They are, they are thriving, unlike they have thrived in the 2300-year history, dating all the way back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. They are thriving at an all-time high. And they gave all of their credit to their gods. They gave all of their credit to their gods. And their gods were things that you could see. They would look up and they would see the clouds and they believed that the clouds were on their side. They would look up and they would see the, the typhoons and the tornadoes come blowing through. And they would believe that the typhoons were on their side and helping them win in battle. They would see the sun and they would see feel the, the earth shake beneath them. And they believed that it was a sign of favor from the gods. That their gods were mightier than all of the other gods. But the interesting thing. And you can't see this in the English. But if you were able to read Nahum in Hebrew, you would see that verses 2 through 8, and that's why I read those specific verses, they are an acrostic. They are a psalm that is written by Nahum within the prophecy. 
And they really enlighten everything else. But the interesting thing, and the reason that I point that out, is because it's an acrostic that's only half written. It's a psalm that's incomplete. And the picture is clear enough, brothers and sisters. Why would there be a half-written psalm? Why would there be a half-written acrostic right at the beginning of the book of Nahum? Because this story is still being written. God is not finished yet. They see what is in front of them, but yet they do not see the big picture. They see God's patience and they mistake it for God's passivity. But God's patience is always for the purpose of repentance. And at the same time to keep, as he says in verse 2, to keep up his wrath for his people. That, what he wants them to see is that all of the gifts of God that they mistake as God's himself are beneath the supreme and sovereign reign of the Lord himself. They believe that the whirlwind is a God. He rides. He, his way, his road is the whirlwind. They believe that some way the clouds are gods that are giving them approval. Here comes the Lord, and the Lord will come in victory, riding on the clouds, the dust under his feet. They believe that the sea is the one that will come and rebuke the nations and protect them from all of their enemies. He is the one that fills the sea and scoops it out with his hand and makes it dry again. They think that because of the wealth of Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon, that they are mighty. No, 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 no. He is the one that planted the trees in Lebanon. He is the one that dug the Tigris River and filled it with water. No, in fact, all of these great gifts of God that they believe are God's, God will use those very gifts as a judgment against them, that God will come through the gifts that he has given them to bring them utterly to their end. In fact, historians are still astounded by how quickly Assyria came to their end. That as Babylon came and marched, they had walls that were 50 feet deep. And they were thought to be impenetrable and impregnable. But do you know what happened? The, the Mosul, Iraq is where Nineveh was located. We, they were so decimated, we didn't even know that for 1,800 years. Many people thought that the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum were imaginary. Because nobody had ever heard of Nineveh. And of course, in the 1800s, after millennia of searching, archaeologists discover and find all these, this documented evidence that they were the capital of Assyria. But do you know what happened? The river that, never swel- that was never swollen swelled. The, li- the river that was the lifeline for Nineveh that allowed it to be so such a thriving metropolis in the middle of the Middle East swole to unprecedented heights and it breached the walls. And it caused these impregnable walls to fall down. Babylon couldn't take them down. Judah couldn't take them down. But the Lord took them down. And Babylon walked through the walls and conquered, laid siege to the city. And took over what was once thought to be an unconquerable city. You see, brothers and sisters, before the Lord, every nation will wail. And to the Lord, every nation will answer. What God is showing them is that he is the Lord of their gods. He is the ruler of their gods. All of their gods, all of their lifelines, all of their dependencies are not upon the river and not upon the sea and not upon the clouds and not upon the sea. They are all dependent upon his sovereign goodness and kindness. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you know what it says about Christ? It's not going to happen in our timing. It's not going to come as quickly as we'd like. 
Our patience is going to be tested. Our, our faith is going to be tested. It's going to seem as though it's impossible. But does this not sound exactly like the picture from Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, talking about the return of Christ? What does it say? Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen, praise the apostle. Your abuser, he may be great. The injustice that you've experienced may be great. The oppressors in your life, your fathers, your parents, your husband, your children perhaps, your boss... The person that you was in the church, the person that was at the school, they may seem great. They may seem as though they are going apart, going around unscathed. The death that you face, the depression that you've known, the sickness that you've experienced, the, in, the insecurity that you face, all of it may seem so great. But brothers and sisters, there is one above whom reigns it all. And there is one who will come and he will bring an end to every last bit of it. And he will come riding on the clouds and he will make all of your abusers answer to him. God is great, you see. God is great. Oh, don't mistake his patience for passivity. He isn't finished yet. The story is only half written. That's not all that Nahum wants them to see. He doesn't just want them to know that God is great. He wants them to know that God is good. Not just that God is great, but that God is good. This is the other question that comes into our mind, isn't it? It is a harrowing realization to realize that God is great enough to have stopped your abuse but he didn't to realize that God could have made you well and ended your bad health but he didn't that God could have spared your child or spared your husband or spared your wife but he didn't and it brings into our mind, if God is so great, why isn't he good? Why would he not intervene? Why would he let young men die? Why would he let young fathers die? Why would he let kids learn of their dad through pictures? Why? This is the question that's facing Judah. We are the chosen people of God. We are the ones that are the apple of your eye, those that you have adopted as your own, those that are your bride. We are your firstborn son. Why is it that you allow such an evil people to reign over us? If you are able, if you are able to ride on the clouds, if you are the one to whom all will answer, why will you not intervene on our behalf? And so Nahum goes to great lengths by putting a simple, profound verse at the culmination of his wrath. Verse 7, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. What does Nahum want them to see? That he is willing. That God is willing. This was always the great question of the gods. The great question of the gods was not their ability, it was their desire. It was their willingness no one doubted the power of the sun or the power of the sea or the power of the tornado. The question was always, would they be willing to intervene on your behalf? Would they be willing to help you? 
And, and it was always a bit like the lottery. Like they, they, they were hoping that the gods would choose them above all the others. That, the, that they would have the right combination, you might think. That, that they would be able to have the, the right sun god and the right rain god and the right fertility god. That they would have all of these identified properly so that they could pay homage to them, make them happy. And by having the right combination, then they would be able to thrive and succeed as a people. And it's not that, uh, that different than the way we are. The names are different, but what do we all think? If I can just have the right education, if I can just have the right relationships, and if I can just get the right job, if I can just get the right combination of those three things, then I can be happy. Then I can, then I can prosper. Oh, but just like it is in our day, those are fickle, fickle gods. They are undependable. They'll chew you up and spit you out. They're there for you one second and they've abandoned you the next because they are not the gods. They are the gifts. They are not the gods. They they are the means. They are answerable to the Lord. So what Nahum wants them to see is their God, the God, the God of all the gods, the Lord to whom the clouds and the sun and the rain all answer and flow and come. He is the one who is willing to intervene on your behalf. He is the one who is willing to be there and to stand in your corner and to justify your name. He is the one. Perhaps we see this most clearly in the person of Christ. Think about what we see all the time in Christ. What do we see? A willingness. Matthew chapter 8, a leper comes to Christ and he's revealing to us who God is, right? A leper comes to Christ and the leper says to him, a leper who's excluded from the community, a leper who has to stand outside the congregation, a leper who can't even bring a a sacrifice before the Lord, one who has to declare his uncleanliness in every venue that he enters. He comes up to Christ and Christ is not repulsed. Christ is not turned around. And do you remember what the leper says? If you are willing, I'll be clean. What does Jesus say? I'm willing, be clean. Think about Gethsemane. There he is in the garden, under such distress, the capillaries burst and blood begins to seep out of the pores of his skin. Under such stress from the thought of being forsaken by his father and having the wrath of God poured upon him, unfiltered and unadulterated. And he he says, Lord, if there is any other way, let that way be. But what does he ultimately say? But I'm willing. I'm willing. And I'll go. As he hangs there on the cross... All those that are gathered around, those that have participated in crucifying him, those that are participating in and bringing up the charges against him and, and inciting the crowds around him, they begin to sneer him. They said, oh, if you are the son of God, then you would come down. If you could save other people, you would save him yourself. But what does his resurrection prove? He could have saved himself But he was willing to hang on our behalf. He was willing to receive the nails that we might be redeemed, that we might be saved. What he is showing us, brothers and sisters, is that God is not just great, but God is good. Perhaps we would wonder, though, why then was God not willing to intervene in Sean's life? Why was God not willing to heal Sean? Why was God not willing to... Answer all of the questions that, all the prayers that we as an army, as a, as a congregation, as a community, we're, we're praying on his behalf. And truthfully, I don't have a great answer for that. But here's what I can tell you. Is that God was willing, as we see this morning, to prepare us for it. To help his family cope with it. 
That God was willing to take the stinger out of death and to hand over to Sean before he passed from this life victory over that grave. That God is willing to walk with Abby and Caroline and Connor through the valley of shadow of death right by their side. I don't know why he didn't intervene, but I can tell you it's not because he is not willing to love us and to help us and to minister to us as his people. Because he's good. He is great and he is good. And he is safe. He, one of the things that God is willing to do is to provide for you and for me, for Abby and for Caroline, a safe place to run. A, per, a person to whom we can go. He says there, a stronghold in the day of trouble. This is a, a place of safe harbor. This is a fortress. This is a refuge. This is your, your father's arms that we're talking about. The other big question that's in the book of Nahum is, will God only discipline us and not deliver us? That the understanding is clear enough. God had told them that because of their sin, that he would allow other armies to come in and come against them. And that they would bring about his discipline against them because the people had turned from the Lord. And they had given themselves over to idolatry. But as Assyria runs roughshod over them, as Assyria conquers Samaria and Assyria conquers the northern kingdom, as Assyria conquers all of the surrounding regions of Judah, only sparing Jerusalem by divine intervention, as John preached uh, last year. The question becomes, how long will his discipline last? And will he not defend us? But you see, every loving father, and many of you didn't experience this, But every loving father disciplines his children while withholding most of his strength. That the way that we discipline our children is by restraining our power. Restraining our strength. Disciplining them just firmly enough so that they will be protected from the harms that they are prone to seek out themselves. Just to be protected from the the greater pain that ought to come. We might bring some temporary pain to protect them from a long-term pain. But when a threat comes against that child, when, when, when an enemy comes against that child, when an intruder enters into that house, the father holds nothing back with every reserve of strength, with every resource that he has at his disposal. The child will stand behind the father and the father will give his life for the sake of the child. And in that way, you see, discipline, rightly done, teaches children where their source of strength is. Discipline rightly exhibited shows children that if dad is holding back, if dad is restraining, then he is the one that will protect me. There's two different experiences you can have with a lion. In the day of trouble, if the lion is against you, you don't stand a chance. Oh, but if you're one of his cubs, if you're one of his cubs, there's no safer place to be. Some of you have lived your entire life and you've never felt safe for one second. Your parents abused you, your teacher abused you, your coach insulted you, your friends made fun of you. Your health has never been right or it's not good now. You were married, your marriage was insecure, it was not good. You go to, job, you go to work every day unsure if your job is still going to be there the, day, uh, the next day when you come. You're unsure of how you're going to continue to be able to provide for yourself. You're unsure and 
all of your life you have felt insecure and unsafe. And here is the Lord saying, not only am I great, but I am good. And he is giving us a place, a person to whom we can run. That you can run and you can take refuge in him. He is a strong tower. He is the lion of Judah. He is your father. And he is inviting you to come to him. Oh, bring your insecurities and your fears and your frailties. Bring your uncertainties. And this morning, come to the Lord, church. Because he is willing and he is able. And he is near. And he is near. Nahum says that he knows those who take refuge in him. That God is always knowing. This is in the present participle, an ing, right? God is, it, it means something that's not, that, that has happened, something that is happening, something that will continue to happen. God is always knowing those who are always taking refuge in him. One of the things about suffering is that suffering can make us feel very lonely, can it? Suffering makes you feel like you live on an island, like nobody can relate to what you're experiencing, like no one really has empathy and compassion toward what you're feeling. It makes you feel as though you've been abandoned in some way. And so here is what he's saying. You can trust my grace. You can trust my grace. You can trust my grace even when you don't feel my grace. I had the privilege a few years ago to hear Andrew Brunson preach. Andrew Brunson was a missionary in Turkey and he was imprisoned on trumped up charges from 2016 to 2018 in a Turkish prison. His wife had to visit him there and he was there serving the Lord and he said that my experience in prison was completely different than what I thought it would be. He said, I had preached, I had thought, I had assumed that in prison, serving God, loving God, that I would have a particular awareness of the presence of God that would be near me. He said, but the truth is, is I felt abandoned. He said, I knew I felt, he said, I knew I had grace, but it was not a felt grace. That I knew that God was good, but I didn't feel that God is good. This is what Nahum is addressing here in Judah. ISIS has taken over Montgomery. ISIS has ascended the White House. They are, they are storming the gates of the people of God. And here they are thinking, but God, where are you? I know we're supposed to be your people. I know we're supposed to be your chosen. I know we're supposed to have your grace, but it sure doesn't feel like it. He says, but God knows you. And the knowledge in the Bible is something different than knowledge like we would pass a test or you would know who Abraham Lincoln is. Knowledge in the Bible is the way a wife and a husband know one another. It's the way a father knows his children. It's an intimate knowledge. It's a, a family knowledge. It means I know everything about you. I know your, your, your transgressions. I know your weaknesses. I know your fears. I know your insecurities. I know what you need. I know where you are. I know, I know what you need. That in other words, knowledge in the Bible is a way to communicate nearness of the Lord. He knows us because he's right here with us. He knows everything about us because he is a part of our lives in an ongoing sense. And often, often it may not feel like it. Oh, but the Lord, the Lord knows. The Lord is there. So what do we do? 
What do we do when we know we have grace, but we don't feel grace? What do we do when we are like Judah, when we know we have been the chosen of God and we have been adopted into the household of God, but it feels like we've been forsaken by God? What do we do when we bury young fathers and young children? What do we do when we face incredible illnesses that seem to be uh, of chronic pain that will not go? What, what do we do? We trust in the promises of God and we remind ourselves of the character of God. And we do that sometimes because we feel it. And we do it sometimes because we trust it. Andrew Brunson, he said that after a year, he had been totally broken down as a person in this prison. And he said, I, I couldn't think of what to do next. He said, my assumption was, this is where I'm going to die. And he says, though I didn't feel it, when I, uh, the verse that came into my mind was Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. Because Matthew chapter 5... 5 verse 12 gives both a command and a promise. And it's a command that if it's given to the wrong person in the wrong circumstances can almost feel oppressive. Rejoice and be glad. How do you go to a grieving widow and say rejoice and be glad? How do you go to someone who's facing chronic pain and say rejoice and be glad? How do you go to someone who has faced abuse and say rejoice and be glad? It almost feels oppressive. But it's a command. Attached to a promise, for your reward is great in heaven. So here's what Brunson said he did. He said, I started making myself dance for five minutes every day in that prison cell. He said, it wasn't because I felt it. It wasn't because I wanted to. It was an act of obedience and faith and trust that God was who he said he was and that God would do what he said he would do. And so I didn't dance because I felt it. I danced because I trusted him. And for five minutes every day, I would dance in the prison of my oppressor. This morning, I wonder if that's where you are. Maybe this morning you're dancing because you feel it. You sense the nearness of grace. Or maybe this morning you would dance in obedience and faith that God is great and God is good. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.